Hi folks, Ty here, another episode of Gender Blunder coming your way, and this time I talked to Ignacio Rivera about sex, kink, porn, and intimacy within an intersectional framework that centers discussions about race, class, and gender. And we also talk about Ignacio's involvement in the HEAL project, Hidden Encounters Alter Lives, which aims to end child sexual abuse. Ignacio is a queer, trans, two-spirit, black, Boricua Taino who prefers the gender-neutral pronoun they. They are an activist, a writer, an educator, a filmmaker, a performance artist, and a mother. Ignacio has over 20 years of experience on multiple fronts, including economic justice, anti-racist, anti-violence, and anti-imperialist work, as well as mujerista and LGBTQ movements. Let's go. Gender... Blender. Blender gender. Gender blender. Gender blender. Gender gender. Gender gender. Gender blender. Hi, my name is Ignacio Rivera, and my Taino name is Hutia Shaiti. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I describe myself in a lot of different ways, uh, depending on which community um, it is. So I identify as two spirit. Uh, trans, gender fluid, gender non-conforming. I also say that I identify as a transformer because I'm more than meets the eye. I love that. (laughs) So what do some of those words mean to you? Like what does being two-spirit mean to you? And what does being gender fluid mean to you? I use the word two-spirit to connect to my indigenous uh, culture. But the Taino word that I use for that as well is... um, Yukomahu, which is two souls, that is very like culturally based for me. And trans for me is a word that I use because I feel like I'm constantly in transition. Mm-hmm. When I describe my gender to folks, a lot of people have like specific questions about uh, my body or uh, what's the end goal for me. And I've never thought of my gender as having an end goal. And that's not to take anything away from people who do. I just, I just have, a, this is the way my I do my gender. And so I often say that in five years, I don't know what I'm going to look like because I just don't know. Uh, I've identified as trans for probably 10 years now. And it's only been in the last four, I think. Or, yeah, in the last four uh, that I've used, uh, I guess you could say medical transition. Um, so I was no op, no ho, mm-hmm. uh, trans person. So trans to me is always the constant movement. Uh, that's, it's always in transition. No op, no ho is short for no operations, no hormones. So trans people who haven't physically or medically transitioned might use this term to refer to themselves. And then of course, g- gender fluid. I have on my chest a a tattoo that says fluid and that's um pretty pretty much really how i identify myself a lot the fluidity um i just kind of ride the wave of how i feel uh, yeah so your work focuses on queer trans kink and sexual liberation issues within a race and class dynamic how do you see your identities and life experiences informing your work uh, great question uh in doing sexual liberation work, um, it's, I mean, I'm coming at it from my own personal experience, of course, as a person of color and as a gender fluid person. And 
the you know these two populations of folks alone are not very re- well represented within the um, sexual liberation or kink kind of sphere. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's what started my work almost 20 years ago, working on creating POC space or um, space that truly includes uh, all gender, um, not just um, binary genders. Mm -hmm. And so it informs my work because it's it's really trying to talk to people and create space, uh, talk to people about the unique challenges that come up for folks of color and um, gender nonconforming or trans people in these spaces that are supposed to be freeing, you know, sexual liberation, we say. <laughs> uh, but it's not very liberating for a lot of folks, and that is not really accessible to a lot of folks, including poor folks, you know, people of color, people with disabilities. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, individuals that don't fit into this wonderful liberation movement, and so I try to kind of talk to those um, and to really like, really like politicize, right? When we talk about sexual liberation, we minimize it only to be about this pleasure-based kind of movement. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course it is. I mean, there's a a big part of it that is pleasure-based, but the sexual liberation movement can, will not and cannot move forward if we don't speak of it as a political Movement, and I don't know if movement is the right word because we're not, you know, so organized. But there are some um, people, individuals, and organizations really taking on that political context. But even within that, it has to be intersectional. Uh, so to think of our sexual liberation means that we need to think about um, all the ways in which um, our system has not allowed women, poor people, people of color, trans people, people with disabilities to be sexually liberated or to even have the information to even understand what the heck that means. And how do you see your work combating that? Like, how do you see your work making sexual liberation accessible to folks who have usually been excluded from it? I think it's uh, multi-pronged. It definitely is one side of it is the educational piece with my community. Right. Because that information has not really been widely given because we're busy trying to live and survive and find jobs and, you know, all the things that we do to navigate these systems. So one piece of it is education and not that. And I think a lot of people do have internally um, uh, some ideas about their own desires and how fucked up the system is. it is for some it's the educational piece but for others it's about bringing it into a public sphere right Mm -hmm. because a lot of it has been private and so the importance of if you are able to and have the privilege to think about talk about navigate and interact with these things in a public way um, that's wonderful because it really opens up the doors for others and the other piece is to hold accountable the institutions groups and people who are doing this sexual liberation work that are mainstream and doing events and yeah, just talking about um, these ways in a really singular way. It's almost replicating, you know, it's replicating this idea that we are, we're all one, you know, (laughs) Uh, we are, we should all just be happy and be sexually liberated together and we'll all get along and everything is just 
fine and dandy, right? Which isn't true. That means that there's a, a lot of work that has to go into really talking about the intersectional lens of what, how, I don't know, how a, uh, how talking about race is super important, right? Because when we think of play spaces or, mm -hmm. you know, these things, a lot of people don't want to think about politics. They say, you know, just leave that shit home. Let's not talk about it. Let's just have fun. Let's just, you know, enjoy each other's bodies. And for a lot of us, we can't do that. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not fun if you leave that stuff at the door because exactly. you can't. Exactly, right? It's like almost impossible. It's impossible to just leave yourself behind, mm -hmm. right? Because you're not, then you are not fully engaging. That there'd be something missing there, right? So every experience and, you know, these spaces, you know, could be racialized or, you know, fetishized, you know, all these right. things. Okay, so I just want to jump in here and explain what play spaces and play parties are for our more vanilla listeners. So in general, when people who are into kink and BDSM talk about play, they're talking about doing kinky things with each other. A play party is like an event that kinky folks can go to to play with other kinky folks. Organizers of a play party might provide BDSM equipment, and often people will actually bring their own equipment like whips or canes or floggers or so on and so forth. A play space is kind of like a dungeon, a space where BDSM equipment is located and where play can happen. Let's get back to my conversation with Ignacio, where we were just talking about how you can't leave your race or your gender or even your class at the door when you enter these play spaces. So these things don't happen in vacuums. They're, they're, they're constantly happening. So uh, we need to be talking about how these things interact. And I mean, uh, someone said this very, very well. I think it was um, someone from the Women's Sexual Health Network, and I um, hope I'm getting that right, with Bianca, who Bianca is um, on. And it said, you know, like, basically, the sexual liberation movement or sexual liberation or the idea of this was built on the backs of, like, poor women and women of color uh, with all of the... Um, fucked up experimental things that have happened to poor women and women of color and they have been well we just I should say we because I was a part of that at some point have been left out of that entire movement right mm -hmm. the predominantly white movement of what sexual liberation is so talking about sexual liberation really has to be has to include like uh welfare reform it has to include um you know sterilization of poor women it has to include um, what sodomy laws, the medicalization of trans people. Um, it includes so many things, the abstinence until marriage, sex education that was put forth by welfare reform. So, so many things interlock with sexual liberation or lack thereof mm -hmm. uh, that there's no way that we can move forward. There's no way that we can do that if we're not talking about it in this broader context. Can you talk more about how you navigate gender fluidity and being a person of color in sex, kink, and relationships? Mm, that's big. <laughs> I know, I know. And like, you can talk about each one separately, talk about them together. Okay. 
so navigating it in sex. So f- straight off, you know, first off, I would say I am super privileged. And I'm privileged because I'm a speaker. I go around talking about this. I get paid to talk about my life and storytell. And I have a platform and I can say whatever the hell I want and I'm going to get paid anyway. So there's a huge privilege that I have. And so when I walk into spaces, if I'm going to go to a play space, whether it's my own play party, which is another privilege because I create my own play parties Mm -hmm. to create my own safer space, um, people already know who I am, right? They They already know who I am. So I don't even have to think about it the way I used to think about it to, to, to say to myself, okay, who can I go up to talk to? Who would I be willing to play with? Who is going to see me fully? Who is going to use the right words for my body part? Who will use the right pronouns? So this was a constant you know, cycle in my head every time I went into play spaces that were predominantly white or events. And now those vo- those the voices in my head have lessened. I like to think that I command some respect um, because people know me or even if it isn't respect because I'm known people will be a little more careful, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, therein lies like a, just a lot of privilege. Um, uh, and even still with that privilege, shit happens, you know? Um, some shit happens because uh, not everybody knows who the hell I am, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, navigating that is really um, thinking about safety. It's thinking about um, how I'm going to feel if this experience is going to shatter me or make me feel fantastic about mm-hmm. myself. It could be the difference between a really extraordinarily wonderful night and a night that's just really going to fuck me up for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, really, you know, tapping into my chosen family network to help me through it, right? So it can go that way. So it's constantly thinking about space, constantly thinking about who's going to be there, constantly thinking about uh, are there going to be other people like me? And if they're not, can I be there? Um, Having an escape plan, (laughs) I say in Mm -hmm. quotes, uh, having a buddy with me, and, you know, checking out what the rules, regulations, ground rules, you know, policies are for each play space, what that looks like. And as my gender uh, presentation or gender expression has shifted, that also has shifted, mm-hmm. right? When I was identifying as trans, which I was no op, no ho, didn't matter. You know, people still saw me as a woman. When I got naked in spaces, uh, I had breasts, so people just defaulted to she, her. So it looked like kind of like that, right? So I decided when I would not bind or bind, or if I were playing and somebody wanted me to be naked, I'd, I'd say, no, I'll keep my binder on and we could do this, right? So I chose the... Um, the way I position my body, the way, you know, where in the room I would play, would it be in the middle of the room or off to a corner? It totally was navigating how my experience or or pleasure was going to play out in these spaces. Uh, And now looking, passing more like a a man, uh, it, it, it shows up very differently as well. Like uh, being seen as, uh, more powerful or um, it can go either way. I'm either seen very, very powerful or I'm seen as not not a real man, which is interesting because I've never identified as a man. So all these kinds of uh, ways or if I'm um, bottoming, what that looks like. Mm-hmm. 
why would I even transition if I if I want to look like a man? Why am I getting fucked like a woman? So all of these different things come up, right? Right. <laughs> and, and and even if it doesn't, because it's happened so often, I'm wondering. So the experience is very different. Um, there's a lot of times where you're in your head. And you're not having the sexual liber- the sexually liberated kind of experience that you're supposed to have in these spaces, right? To kind of just let loose and, you know, have fun and experience your body. It's hard when your body is constantly changing and other people are constantly viewing and surveillancing. I'm also wondering, how did you get into making porn? Oh, yes. So I uh, used to work at a sex toy store, or what was it, uh, Toys in Babeland, but now called Babeland in <laughs> uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have another one in California, but in, in New York. And I was working with uh, Morty Diamond, um, who ha- who is the director of uh, Tranny Fags and um, the trans entities, which was I, I was in with my partner at the time. And we used to talk a lot about relationships and sex and all that, as you do at a sex shop, you know, Yeah. (laughs) as you work there for several hours. That's what you talk about is sex, sex, sex. And uh, he was very interested in the relationship that we had um, and wanted to do like a documentary. On you and your partner? Yes, me and my partner. But even before that, it was for me doing... Porn. I was just on a panel about this, actually. Doing porn was, I was coming at it from a lot of different ways. For me, it was another piece of my healing. I mean, in addition to, you know, making some money, of course, making legitimate money, um, it was really a part of my, my healing from sexual trauma. I have been and will continue to be on a journey for, of sexual healing and uh, part of that was to, you know, take ownership of my body and my desire and um, and being really unapologetic about that. So he asked and I was like, OK, let's let's do it. So it was like kind of a, a docu-porn, what they call. So trans entities, the nasty love of Poppy and Will was <laughs> the very first one <laughs> that uh, I did. And it was we got a lot of great um, reception for that. Um, And it was interesting because both my partner at the time and myself identified as trans. And at that time, no op, no ho, and did, you know, this porn talking about the trans entity. We we both used the term trans entity to Mm -hmm. say um, trans and not saying trans woman or trans man, but we are, you know. Oh, just trans entity. Yes. Mm, I like that. So my partner at the time, he came up with that term and we loved it. So they named the porn that the nasty love of Papi and Will, like how we were as polyamorous people, as trans, no op, no ho people, and actually like being naked and vulnerable and talking about this and fucking and doing our scenes and being kinky, all that stuff. That was a great uh, experience for me and very, very healing, actually, especially with the the reception that I got from people. Like people were really happy about it. And a lot of people were like, yeah, I like having sex like that too. And they either connected on the ways in which we navigated sex and mm-hmm. kink or 
the the way we identify as trans or just that we were fucking people of color on screen you know like the being people of color together you know doing this of uh, a porn focused on two people of color so that was pretty amazing and so that was the very very first one what is it about the performance of sex that is healing for you um, it is about having my absolute agency over my body, right? Um, it's the it's the whole idea of saying yes, having cameras there, um, negotiating what I want to do, how I want to do it. Uh, and of course, another part of it is that I'm a total exhibitionist. It feeds into that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was a different experience from, you know, many, many years ago where I had no idea that you could actually negotiate what you wanted that um i didn't even know what my desires were i had sex to have sex and to to you know make the other person feel better i would do anything that another person wanted me to do and i was not in my own body Mm -hmm. for me um doing porn was being totally in my body and totally sure of everything that i wanted to be doing there and i wanted i wanted people to witness it it wasn't a secret It was exactly what I wanted. And is part of it, like, is part of the healing process, the fact that it isn't a secret, like that you're being open and that you don't need to be ashamed anymore? Yes, absolutely. That it isn't, yeah, that it isn't a secret, that it's not shameful, um, that it it should be celebrated and it's it's mine. It's mine to celebrate. And if you want to be a part of it, fantastic. (laughs) Too, right? Okay, I want to talk about another project of yours, uh, which is a lot more serious, mm-hmm. and it's Heal, Hidden yeah. Encounters, Alter Lives. And yes. yeah, so can you talk a bit about that project, and then I have follow-up questions for you. Okay, so the Heal project, uh, Hidden Encounters, Altered Lives, is a project that I was really lucky to get funded for because um, it's just amazing to get funded to to really do some work on ending child sexual abuse. So I was one of eight people of color that were chosen to create a project to help address or end child sexual abuse. And all of us are survivors. It was through the Just Beginnings Collaborative. And so through that project, they wanted some new innovative things about how we can talk about ending it in my project. For me, it was interesting when I got the email, I was like, this is really simple for me. The way I think about how I want to work on ending child sexual abuse, the platform is that comprehensive sex education um, can be a tool to addressing and helping to end child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Meaning we uh, need to be talking to our children, young people in our lives from birth to crossing over. And so when we are talking to young people, talking with young people about sex and sexuality in a celebratory, wonderful, open way, we really help to eliminate the secrecy that can be created because they know nothing, right? So if, if, if children, children are targets because they don't have power in the world, they don't have the language, right? And so I also talk about my project in the context of power, that adults have power over children mm-hmm. um, and that this these are tools. Um, this this information is absolute and very vital and important tools. 
Also, because we live in a culture that we think that we can talk to young people one time about sex, and that will be all the ammunition that they need for the world. And it's just, it's ridiculous to think that when so many of the things that we do or how we live in the world or how we navigate the world has to do with sex education. And I'm not just talking about actual the actual act of sex whatever that looks like right it really goes beyond that because it's about learning communication tools learning to understand your own desires understanding the difference between fantasy and reality it's about um creating your own boundaries understanding what consent means that's that's really about like forming friendships right forming relationships even beyond the sexual relationship um, talking about rape culture, understanding the history of oppression of women, um, talking about you know LGBT uh, oppression and uh, so many things. I mean, it is so so many ways the, that we can talk about comprehensive sex education. So that's been my platform, and through that, there's like a lot of little projects that I've done, like social media campaign. I have also a spin-off thing with my daughter called Pure Love, which is an online talk show. And it's us actually just talking about the, the ways in which that I raised her as a positive sexual being. And uh, kind of like what I usually do is basically storytelling. It's, it's humanizing me and my daughter. It's about this isn't a scary thing. We can do this and it's okay. <laughs> Your kids aren't going to run out and try to have sex with everybody just because you're giving them information, you know. So <laughs> That's so true. It's like, it's like if, they talk, if we talk to kids about sex, everyone's going to be having sex. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, that's not true. And here my daughter can talk about it with you all. So, yeah. So uh, it's been an amazing, amazing project that I really love doing. Mm -hmm. And also takes a lot of it takes a lot um, to be talking about being a survivor of child sexual abuse and and, um, incest and rape. And uh, yeah, what that means, what how it how that has an impact or can have an impact on the rest of your life. You know, people think that that's something that happened so long ago, you know, get over it. And it's just not the case. It is certainly not the case. I also wanted to pick out something that you've written about the HEAL project, which mm-hmm. is like you say something like, we live in a hypersexual society that presents us with so much sexual imagery, but doesn't actually talk about it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about that and like the absurdity that is the way that like North America and like Western society in general talks about sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because, yeah, especially now with, I mean, the internet. The internet. We uh, we are a society that currently a society that has so much information thrown at us every single day. The access to the internet is, you know, endless. You have it on your phone. You can get it on your computer. Like it's everywhere. And if you think that young people are not searching and finding things online that are giving them sometimes incorrect information then you're totally wrong. I mean, it's like, it's out there. So 
Um, it is it is more than ever the time to be talking to young people very openly and honestly about um, sex. And when I say sex, I mean, part of the project is to really dissect what sex and sex education is. And through that, I had a multi, uh, social media campaign called Sex Ed Is, where I interviewed folks. I asked them several questions, and I think it was, uh, when was the first time you learned about sex? How was learning or not learning about sex? How has that impacted you? What is comprehensive sex education? And if they were parents, I said, um, if you're a parent, uh, as a parent I have, I will... And I fear or something, right? So um, people would, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people answered, you know, the first time I learned about sex, it was through my sexual abuse or sexual assault, right? Uh, so that that's like, that's number one for uh, child sexual abuse survivors. So that has completely tainted our, um, our journey, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the other, um, how has that impacted you? So a lot of people were like, well, it impacted me because I didn't know what was happening. I had no words for it. I had no language for it. I thought it was natural. I thought it was okay. Uh, or I had complete shame. I was evil. All of these different themes, that things that came up. And so we, when I say what is comprehensive sex education, then people delve into that and say, well, comprehensive sex education goes beyond penis and vagina. It goes beyond like heterosexual sex. It's um, talking about queer sex. It's talking about kink. It's talking about uh, bodies. It's intersectional. I'm talking about race and sexuality. It's talking about bodies, you know, um, uh, fat phobia and, you know, and sex. It's talking about how to, you know, like imagine parents talking to their kids about how to do these things, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people don't even conceive of the idea that you would actually have a how-to talk with your children about how to make out, how to actually have sex, how to, you know. And in my world, because raising my daughter, that's the way it was, it was amazing to actually have clear and open conversations with her about that. Um, And it truly made a difference in her life about how she navigated um, sex, um, not afraid, understanding her power, also understanding the limitations that society puts on her as a fat black, you know, uh, woman who has a queer trans poly weird parent, you know, <laughs> right. Um, and one of the examples I think I have given, I probably gave it on some interview or even on the show that, um, j- my daughter, in her 20 early 20s uh she calls me um and so i still identify as a mother very strongly um so she calls me and she says ma you're the only person i could ask about this and i was like okay what is it and she's like how do you negotiate a three-way and i was like this is my life i love it i love that my daughter can call me confidently and just say mom i i'm I'm interested in doing a three-way how can you help me and we proceeded to have like an hour conversation about what that would look like. So I asked her lots of questions. I was like, is this theoretical or are the people in place? And she's like, people in place. I'm like, are they a couple or are they two individuals? Like, um, I think they were individuals. And I was like, okay, great. And she's like, so why do you ask that? And I was like, oh, because it's different if it's a couple. Mm-hmm. So we just started dissecting all of these things and 
And then afterwards, when it happened, she called me and said it was great. So she gave me feedback on how it went well. And I think for other people, they, they're probably thinking, wow, that's gross. I don't know what my I don't want to know what my child is doing. And it's also the other way around when young people or even you know, adult children say, oh, gross, I don't ever want to think about my parents having sex. And I think that's, you know, I think that there's something there, right? Yeah, why do you think that that would be people's reaction? Right, you know, it's like, it shouldn't be gross. It's like, we're human beings, you know, and if we choose to be sexual people, or if that's our desire, then it shouldn't be seen as gross. Like when we think about, you know, elders, you know, having sex, oh, that's disgusting. You know, the old people, you know, we have this idea about old people, fat people. I mean, we have this idea about so many kinds of people. So yeah. who gets to have sex and who gets to have desire? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but why do you think that people are so afraid of talking with family members about sex? Oh, I think it's a lot of different reasons. I think one major reason that people don't know about sex. Um, there are a lot of adults right now that really, I mean, because they never had the conversation. And then their parents never had the conversations mm-hmm. and their parents' parents never had the conversation. So it's like trial and error. People have just been freaking doing it, right? People just been doing it. Um, and just learning through that way or talking to friends or reading books. Some people will read books. Some people will talk to friends and others won't because it's very private, right? So if someone is absolutely private and not, um, you know, talking about these things openly and honestly, right? Uh, And then they have a child and then their child is becoming of age and it's time to talk to them. They don't have the they don't have the capacity to do that, right? And they don't even know what to share. Mm-hmm. Because in this project, a lot of people, one of the major questions people ask me is like, what is the appropriate age? What is the right age? And it's interesting because that's not how I talk about it or teach it. I say the point of this is goes beyond sex education. It's actually about the connection that you have with your child, the relationship you build with them, right? Because when you're having... A relationship if you're hopefully we have a deeper relationship with our child then we get to share information with them they get to ask questions and we get to respond right we get to know what they're ready for and what they're not I don't think that things really need to be withheld but a lot of people jump straight to the kink they say well I'm not gonna teach my five-year-old about BDSM and I'm like okay come on <laughs> that's not even fair to say it's like you're not even actually engaging with it with the right. conversation if you're saying that <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, all right, you know, so it, it's really about I didn't have a, a, a manual or anything like that. I kind of just vibed off my daughter and she asked me questions and I was always available to her and and everything was a teachable moment. We'd watch a movie and after the movie, we dissect things and she, you know, t- we talk about you know, sexism and homophobia mm-hmm. and how to show up in that movie. And so we we talked constantly about all of these ways. It wasn't the one talk. That's why I make fun of the talk. It's mm. not just one thing. It's like, it's conversations throughout your entire life. I'm, I'm still having conversations with my daughter about relationships and sex, and I want to continue having them with her. It's so funny because my mom listens to the podcast, and <laughs> I'm just thinking like how it will be interesting to talk to her about this episode. <laughs> Shout out to my mom. so i'm talking about parents having a relationship with their children 
And I also know that in reality, a lot of people, a lot of parents are not close to their children or uh, parents are not a part of a child's life, right? So this project is not just about like biological parents and stuff. It's about any adult that has connection to a young person. That could be a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, a sibling. Um, it's, it's really this... For me, it's about this community way of looking at sex and sexuality that it is so not a private thing, right? So that if we're all talking about this openly and honestly, there's no room for secrecy and shame, right? Mm. We're interacting the secrecy and shame. So um, this is the responsibility of all of us because when we when we enter into the power conversation here, you know, adults have power over young people. Mm-hmm. And to uh, to not give them this information, knowing, absolutely knowing that it could highly prevent um, sexual assault or abuse, especially as children, is a disservice to young people. And so this com- these conversations have to happen. I think they're absolutely vital. They're absolutely vital. I just have so many thoughts because this is so interesting. But I'm also mm-hmm. thinking about like how so much of your work is just making sex public and how so much of like our understanding of sex like in Western society is like that it needs to be private, that it happens only in the bedroom and like that it happens right. in a private space. Even the way that we talk about like the parts of our bodies that are involved in sex is like they're called private parts. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes, it really is about this public kind of way of um talking about it doing it you know uh i think i think it's just important i mean it it really connects to my survivorship because it really connects to like that not not that secrecy Mm -hmm. you know it's like being so happy about it like i'm happy i like to talk about when i have wonderful orgasms i like to talk to my friends about sex like like sitting around and talking with my friends about the good sex or even the quote unquote bad sex that we had or bad experiences is so liberating. Mm-hmm. It's liberating because you're not by yourself and you know other people are going through it. This is like a human experience um, or that you're not interested in having sexual relationships. You know, like I don't want to talk about this only as people who do sex because this incorporates all sexual orientations. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even, you know, like normalizing asexuality, you know, like, all of these ways, I think if we were really honest and open about these things and people really would not have as much shame as they do about their bodies, desires, sex, all of the things that we were made to, t- to, to, to think that we needed to be shameful about. Um, good example here is like when I was um, starting to, when I started identifying as polyamorous when my daughter was young, and kinky when my daughter was young and you know I'm a, so I'm a lesbian at one point I'm kinky I'm polyamorous and then later on I'm coming out as genderqueer and all this stuff so many many people in the community were talking about me in such nasty ways um I was a whore right and this is absolutely very specific to you know being viewed as a woman um, no matter what my gender expression was, you know, it's like I was such a whore and I was a horrible mother. Mm. So many people associated my sexual liberation 
and healing as um, being a, a horrible to my daughter. Like I, people were saying that they felt so sorry for my daughter because I, I was their parent. And they wondered what she was going through, which is quite interesting because my daughter and I have a wonderful relationship. And everything I've ever done, everything, she knows about it. I mean, I have no secrets from my daughter. So she knows about my porn. She knows about my sex work. She knows she knows about all of it um, because it's not shameful to be mm-hmm. at all. Cool. And I also think that's a good segue into a conversation about polyamory and I guess the ways that you understand the relationships in your life in relation to love and in relation to sex. Mm-hmm. So I um, been identifying as polyamorous almost close to 20 years now, I think. Yes, almost close to 20 years. And uh, for me, it, ha- it has the way I've, I've uh, I guess, navigated polyamory has shifted. So uh, when I first came to polyamory, I was very much um, interested in a primary partnership and then um, bringing someone into our primary partnership to play here and there, you know, maybe and maybe something more would come out of it. But really, my core was my primary partnership. And that has since changed all the way to the other end for me Mm -hmm. right now that I've had. Um, primary partnerships in which I lived with uh, someone. I've been a part of a, of a quad, um, triad, um, and now I identify as an independent polyamorous. Mm-hmm. And this, for me, it's not to say that any of those other ways are bad. I was happy that I was able to journey through polyamory and get to the space that I feel is right for me now. Who knows how I'll feel later on. That's the beauty of it. I think it's very fluid and movable. And so for me, independent polyamory is that uh, I am not engaged in what people some, some people might describe as the escalator of relationships right so that once you start a relationship you're on an escalator moving up towards a goal right mm-hmm. whether being in with each other sharing expenses getting married anything like that that does not interest me at all um i'm totally not interested in having a primary partner um i often say that my primary partnership is to myself and my daughter um and so that um that kind of idea of being an independent polyamorous is really freeing for me uh, in a lot of ways uh, because it doesn't make me feel like that there's a formula, right? This formula that exists. I remember my mom telling me when I was young, you know, when you meet someone, you go out with them and by the time you've been together with them for three months, you should already know by six months, you already know that you're about, you're going to get married in a year. (laughs) should have been married you know there was like this formula and I was like that doesn't sound appealing to me Mm -hmm. you know uh so I I have different relationships in my life but none of them are primary relationships or or I should say in the ways in which people identify primary relationships I don't live with anyone I don't share expenses with anyone um and my independent polyamory mirrors my gender fluidity in a lot of ways because it's um, people can't identify it. Very scary for people sometimes, right? So there are some people that will say that 
they're not cool with this independent polyamorous thing because they're like, so where do I fit here? Where do we go? Um, people think that I'm, uh, that means that I'm pretty selfish, that I'm not committed, which is actually false. Um, I, I think I'm a very committed person and actually a very loving person. And I have really long relationships with people. It's always the contrary to what people think. <laughs> uh, so I currently have a relationship with a woman that I, I've, I've been in this relationship for 14 years um, with her. Um, she's a black bisexual cis woman. And I have a relationship with a black trans man um, for the past three years, three and a half years. And I have a um, DS, dominant submissive uh, relationship with a uh, black uh, cis queer woman. And that's been for the last year. But but we have been in each other's lives to probably like 15 years mm-hmm. or so. Um, and my chosen family network is a huge part of my life. And all of those range from being in each other's lives from, I don't know, maybe 10 years to 20 years. So I have long relationships with these people and they're my core. Um, so they're a part of that for me when I say my polyamory is also a part of my chosen family network. Uh, so that's how I'm navigating poly life right now, mm-hmm. and I'm absolutely loving it. Sounds really fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have one more question, and we've definitely talked about this, but I think it will just be like a good question to wrap things up. My last question is, what does sexual liberation look like for you? Mm, that's a wonderful question. I mean, sexual liberation for me... I think I can think about it in terms of personal, interpersonal, and institutional, right? So for me personally, that I get to have whatever freaking relationship I want to have, that I can talk openly and negotiate and go up to people to talk about these desires and things, that I won't get punched in the face by a cis guy if I'm talking to him about sex and sexuality, that people will absolutely understand that just what they see is not what it is for anyone. I don't care if you're trans or cis, right? That you are so much more. And so that means that communication is key to, to really talk about who you are, what you want, what you desire, you know, and I have the, the having the right to be an independent polyamorist and not being shameful of my desires. Um, interpersonally, I think that kind of went into interpersonally too, individual interpersonally, like how I connect with other people, how they see me. And then on a wider scale, it would really be about talking about sexual liberation in the, in the ways that we need to, right. In terms Mm -hmm. of there are, there are cases where poly parents, their children are taken away from them. Right. Uh, or people who are kinky, um, and have kind of these specific jobs. They can't be out and be kinky because they can get fired or seen as horrible human beings, right? It's the way that society hasn't caught up with how people are living and being happy. Uh, it is so, um, you know, highly stigmatized. Um, people can lose jobs and homes, um, families um, because of it. And it's because we don't have enough information or knowledge and we go off of social media or TV or media, just media. Mm-hmm. You know, we go media 
and make decisions about who kinky people are, who trans people are. So for me, it's um, it's really a, a broader educational thing for society, how really how sexual liberation is tied into all of us, mm-hmm. right? It's not just the weird sexual liberationists, right? It's like, this is something that benefits everyone. <laughs> uh, every single person it benefits, uh, the, um, the grandparent, the asexual person, the queer person, the cis person, uh, we all have relationships and we get to have the right agency and power to create whatever relationship makes sense to us as long as it is consensual. Mm-hmm. That's sexual liberation for me, that we have choices. I mean, real choices, that we have agency, that we don't have secrecy or are being punished or shamed for stepping outside of what mainstream society deems uh, proper, you know, appropriate relationships. Cool. That was so excellent. Wow. I feel like that was healing for me. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Hmm. Let's see. Let me think. I cannot think of anything. I think I said it all. I think you did say it all, Ignacio. This conversation provides a really good jumping off point for more conversations about sex, kink, and intimacy. For Gender Blender listeners, I just started grad school, so episodes will be coming out a little bit less frequently. You can expect the next one in four weeks. As always, the music was made by Zaqueer, and the graphic design was done by Alex Areza. See you next time. <laughs>